namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddham dhammam sangam namasami you had a very full day of silence today a precious gift to all of us to the world because it's a noisy noisy world and coming here from a noisy world it's quite likely that the mind is noisy because it's a contagious thing wherever we are that's what we carry with us and we need quite a lot of training of the mind to be able to sustain this kind of silence and devoted attention within ourselves when there's a blizzard going on around us or a lot of hostility conflict agitation etc but sitting here and knowing the object seeing the object and keeping consciousness focused on the object mindfully moment by moment that's part of it but it's not enough because there may still be that blizzard going on within us anybody notice little little stormy in there and when the storm is going and we are not able to work with those currents the wind the the earth wind fire and water elements and the mind the thoughts whirling and tangled up together then that impedes our ability to know the object clearly so i thought it would be helpful tonight to talk about some of the obstacles to clear and consistent persevering energy that of awareness that keeps the object or keeps um our attention on what is the state of the mind at all times because we do get pulled away we get pulled out and the world here is not as as conflicted as it is perhaps in our daily life back home whether you live in the city or the country there are things pulling on us our duties responsibilities also other people's expectations our own expectations opinions memories future plans um work obligations the body's own tiredness and all of that and the buddha expert doctor that he was and is because the buddha the, the miracle of his teaching 
is that the Buddha is just as much alive for us today as he may have been 2,600 years ago if we practice. If we practice his teaching, the Buddha is very much within us. This has been, uh, this is what I feel through my, my monastic life. I feel like the teacher is present. Actually, there's a very beautiful chant in this book, which we may or may not get to, but it does, it does refer to that, that the teacher is present within us. And that's what we need to do. We need to bring the teacher inside, within us. We need to learn how to practice Buddha mind, like the awakened mind, so that we can coach ourselves as if the Buddha were sitting there and saying, now a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right, slower, stay with it, or move to a different object. But we have we have scripture. We have Pali Canon, 84,000 verses of his teachings. And many of them we know to be um, pretty true to what the Buddha must have said because of the studies that have been done in later day generations, particularly this generation, um, comparing the Chinese agamas or Chinese suttas, sutras with the classical Pali canon. And wherever they agree, we can pretty much be sure that this, because they, they grew up, they uh, evolved in different countries over hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet in some, many, many of those suttas are verbatim the same. Is that right, Bhante? Just checking. <laughs> Scholar. Um, so this is very exciting. What other tradition do we know on this planet that has a teaching that goes back, a wisdom teaching that goes back to more than two and a half millennia and is still as if the, the teacher were speaking to us? So... Tonight, in discussing the hindrances, I thought it would be worthwhile to hear a little bit of the Buddha's voice because um, it's so beautiful, it's uh, not possible for me to improve on it. And I love this particular simile, and you'll see why. And then I will try to summarize a little bit um, what these five main hindrances are and how we can use this image to contemplate our own condition and to figure out our way out of it. We are figuring out our way out of it, but we do have to be aware that on this path there are grave obstacles and we have to take them seriously. It's good to think of ourselves, as I mentioned in one of the groups, like um, prisoners or mental patients. This is a mental hospital. <laughs> and I think when Ajahn Chah came here some three decades ago or more, it was more than that, um, I believe that he, he did use that same analogy to the yogis. 
and, and, and calling us um, mental patients. Yeah. So um, we have mental illness. And that's not a derogatory way of speaking because all of us have PTSD of one sort or another, addictions are one so- of one sort or another, some more extreme. Um, we all have some form of bipolarity. We go from love to hate in a minute, some to the point where we're dysfunctional in terms of society. And for others, it's, it's becoming quite minimal because we're able to learn how to guard our sense doors and use mindfulness moment by moment to assure, be sure, to ensure that we're not getting caught in the currents of greed, hatred, and delusion. So let's um, go to this particular uh, reading. And of course, this language is a bit archaic. It's an ar- uh, a little. It's a little modernized, and so some of the words I, I'll try to adapt them as I read, so that they're more fitting to our culture. But that's not to detract. I hope from the meaning. And instead of the word bhikkhu, I will say disciple. A bhikkhu means, in the old days, a bhikkhu was what the Buddha referred to anyone that came to sit and listen to a talk. But over the years, because there were lay people, there were bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns, would come and hear his teachings, lay men and lay women, but that word was used uh, quite commonly then, and it's grown to become much more specifically referring to monks and bhikkhunis to nuns, or fully ordained nuns and fully ordained monks. So bhikkhus and bhikkhunis nowadays refer to the monastic sangha. And I'm not asking Bhante about that, but you can correct me. Um, All disciples, right. But um, I also once asked um, a friend in uh, Asia who is a Pali scholar if it's true that the plural of bhikkhu, which bhikkhu, that's English when add an S, but bhikkhu with a long U is plural, and that would incorporate um, both genders in it. So um, if somebody refers to me as a bhikkhu, I just hold it like that. I don't try to get uh, specific about it. So, um, all right. Um, Now, the Buddha is talking to Sunakata, and he's referring to oh, i i should have i can't start f- really from the beginning because it's a bit long um but he was a, a disciple a son of the lichavis uh, one of the nearby provinces where the buddha taught and he came and asked the buddha to um 
give him a teaching and he wanted to know how if some of the disciples overestimated themselves and we know that this we do this we, we all we either underestimate or we overestimate that's why it's important to have a teacher who can give direct guidance and check in because we we tend to think that we're way ahead of where we are or we're hopeless and can't do it but it's hard to know and it's actually not that important to know where we are in it's not like college this is a lifelong project and this is something that could take lifetimes but as ajahn chah once said it doesn't matter how long it takes all we have to do is keep working because this is the most exalted path that a human being can follow opinion but <laughs> i'm allowed so um the buddha wants to present to sunakata what some of the downfalls are for one in the training and he gives this example um It is possible sunakata that some disciple here might think thus craving has been called an arrow craving tanha craving wanting craving longing for something the yearning for for pleasure for for the avoidance of pain for excitement for entertainment for attention for love for companionship the yearning all the yearnings that we have coming from craving craving has been called an arrow by the recluse and he's referring to himself the poison of ignorance is spread by desire and this this arrow has a poisonous tip it is spread by desire by lust and ill will Now lust does not only mean like lusting for sexual pleasure but it could be lust like greed for sense pleasure the pleasure of the senses too much chocolate or too much who is too much food because it's eight precepts and you might starve at night you just have to eat all more than your tummy can handle this is greed that arrow of craving has been removed from me and the buddha is reflecting on himself the poison of ignorance has been expelled i am one who is completely intent on nibbana because he falsely thinks of himself thus he might pursue those things now the actually the buddha is talking about a yogi or a practitioner here who thinks that he no longer has craving because he falsely thinks of himself thus he might pursue those things that are unsuitable for one completely intent on nibbana and we do this we get caught in thinking about people that we don't like and getting upset again about something that happened years ago and living and chewing on that instead of being present being mindful being free of the past free of the future and able to stay present enough to know the mind clearly and the weather of the mind 
to clear the weather of the mind so that we can develop a stable, steadfast, unified mental state. He might pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye. He or she, her, that disciple might pursue the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye, unsuitable sounds with the ear, unsuitable odors with the nose, unsuitable flavors with the tongue, unsuitable tangible objects with the body, or unsuitable mind objects with the mind. And when that disciple pursues the sight of unsuitable forms with the eye, unsuitable uh, sounds with the ear, etc., then lust would invade that person's mind. And with this mind invaded by lust, they would incur death or deadly suffering. Of course, that's the extreme. Here's the the, uh, beautiful simile. Suppose that a man or a woman, a person, were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and that person's friends and companions, kinsmen and relatives, brought a surgeon. And the surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife and would probe around the arrow with a probe and would pull out the arrow and expel the poison. And then that surgeon would say, good fellow or good friend, the arrow has been pulled out of you. The poison has been expelled with a trace left. Doesn't sound too good. (laughs) But it is incapable of harming you. That sounds like a best scenario with um, a doctor nowadays. No, it's not going to hurt you. Don't worry. Just eat the right food. Don't eat the wrong food. Or else the wound may suppurate, which means pus might, you know, might get infected and start to leak. So from time to time, wash the wound and anoint its opening so that pus and blood do not cover the opening of the wound. And we've all experienced this. If you fall down and cut your skin, if you don't tend to it, it'll get infected and pretty soon you could have sepsis and and have a serious infection. Don't walk around in the wind and the sun or dust and dirt may infect the opening of the wound. Take care of the wound. Take care and see to it that the wound heals. And then that person would think, the arrow is out, the poison is expelled, with no trace left behind, this is the exaggerated bit, where you overestimate that you're you're safe. You don't have to take care of this. And you go and um, completely disregard the instructions of the doctor. And you subject yourself to things that will infect the wound. And what do you think the Buddha is referring to? What is this wound? What... What kind of wounds do we have? Actually, the wound stands for our six senses, our six sense bases. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the, the sense, body sense gratification, and the, the mind, thoughts coming in. Because these are, they're like the sense media 
a media means a, a way that things can arrive, can enter into our being. So we get infected by sights, by sounds, by smells, by tastes, by touch sensations, and by thoughts. And then craving feeds. Our, we crave those things and we want more or we want less. We don't want it, we reject it, or we want more of it, or we want something else. And the wanting is endless. Then we have fallen away from our inclination towards freeing the mind, and we're caught again in the world. So uh, the Buddha says, Sunakata, it is possible that some bhikkhu here might think craving has been called an arrow, and the poison of ignorance is spread about by lust, desire, lust, and ill will. But that arrow of craving has been removed from me, so I'm safe. And yet, because of falsely thinking that that person falsely believes that they're free, they go about having wrong contacts, not guarding their sense doors, not restraining the senses, and not being able to practice mindfulness, to focus the mind, to be intent on freeing the mind from the poisons of the world, of the heart, and is unable to realize his goal or her goal. With a mind invaded by lust, they would incur death or deadly suffering. Of course, that's the worst-case scenario. But what does the Buddha mean here by death? He's not talking about death of the body, but he's talking about spiritual death. That if we allow ourselves to be dragged away by greed, hatred, and delusion, then that's spiritual death for us. Therefore, for us to practice intently and precisely, be able to keep the mind still, stilled, calm, present, attentive, wisely seeing the object, clearly knowing, and unifying the mind on that object, gaining steadfastness, gaining the energy for enlightenment. If we are bent on that, and yet we are not aware that the mind has been distracted and degraded from its precision, from its clarity, from its present moment awareness by these poisons, then we have no chance. That would be spiritual death for us. Therefore, the Buddha emphasizes restraint of the sense doors as one of the guardian uh, ways to protect our practice. The probe is mindfulness, and the knife from he cut away the bad bits is wisdom. We need that wisdom. And this is the whole import of this simile of the poisoned arrow. Now tonight is is almost the full moon. Tomorrow is the full moon day. It's a very bright night. And then this weekend we have the Easter weekend, the full moon, the Easter Sunday. It's a kind of a spiritual time. We're very blessed to be together at this auspicious time of year. 
an auspicious time in our monastic month also, when we usually <coughs> gather together to review our rule and to recommit to our training. So I urge all of you to take heed of this kind of daily, not, it's not just daily, but really it's a kind of continuous training that you've entered into and hold steadfastly to it the way you would hold to something that can save your life. Because it is life-saving. It's spiritual life that we all hunger for or we wouldn't be here. To pull out the arrow, yeah, we can pull out the arrow once. We have to act like the Buddha himself. We have to be our own surgeon. We have to know that there is the arrow, a poison arrow, the arrow of ignorance and the poison of craving has entered into us. And if we are able to guard our sense doors in the way that the Buddha taught, then we will be aware when there's greed in the mind. We'll be aware when there's ill will in the mind. We'll be aware when there's restlessness and agitation in the mind. We'll be aware when there's sloth and torpor in the mind. We'll be aware when there's doubt in the mind. And immediately, when we're aware that any of those hindrances in the mind, we will do our best to remove the causes and conditions for those hindrances. We'll abandon those causes and conditions for each of those hindrances or any hindrance that we may be aware of as soon as we can be aware of it. We abandon it. And we bring forth the causes and conditions for non-greed, non-ill will, non-restlessness, wakefulness, non-sloth and torpor, and for trust to arise in our hearts. So these are five hindrances that can occur for a noble disciple. We are all disciples here. If you really sincerely practice this training to remove that poison arrow so that there's no trace of craving left, then we are really in a safe inclination towards the deathless, that which is beyond death, beyond spiritual death. Then the Buddha says, suppose Sunakata, a man or a woman, a disciple were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison and their friends came, their companions, kinsmen and relative brought a surgeon. The surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound with a knife, would probe for the arrow with a probe and would pull out the arrow and expel the poison without leaving a trace. Then, when the arrow is pulled out, then it is incapable of harming you. It can no longer harm us. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to pull out this arrow. Eat only suitable food. What does the Buddha mean by that? He doesn't mean strawberries and lettuce and things like that. He means eat with our eyes, with our ears, with our nose, our our sense of smell, our sense of taste, with our touch sensation and with the mind, eat only suitable food. He means when you see a form, be aware. Beware not to follow greed for that. 
if we look at any object, don't follow the greedy mind, but see that object for what it really is. It's impermanent. It's unsatisfactory in and of itself. It cannot give me the deathless. It cannot give me spiritual freedom. And it's empty of any self. Therefore, what can it give me? We can let it go. That's true for any object, visual, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensation, or thoughts. We can see those three characteristics and know the impermanence, the dukkha, the suffering inherent in all conditioned things and the emptiness of all conditioned things. And by virtue of that understanding, our mind is already sealed in. We have a high seclusion of mind from the hindrances and the hindrances will no longer poison our consciousness and we'll be able to attend properly to the meditation object and bring up that clarity of knowing the object with such precision that moment by moment, fine moment, subtle moment by moment, we are not losing our awareness for any intrusion that may come near us. Even if a yogi were to wobble in their seat or get up and thrash around the hall, we would sit and observe our object with the joy of present moment, awareness and immersion in what is true, in what can really free the mind from these hindrances. So that is how we can also be safe from this poisoned arrow of ignorance smeared with craving. And we can be our own surgeon like the Buddha. We can remove it when it's there and we can prevent it from entering. And we can sustain the safety from arrows that are constantly coming towards us in in daily life. When you leave this sanctuary and go back into the world, where will your sanctuary be? in the heart. Through this practice, we will develop a sanctuary within us through mindfulness and clear comprehension, through contentment with what is good and wholesome, not putting energy into that which is harmful to ourselves or others, with good companionship, with moderation, with guarding our sense doors moment by moment with investigation of dhammas, investigating forms, investigating feelings, investigating the condition of the mind at all times, so that when the mind is beset by, by fear, by anger, by worry, by restlessness, by resentments, by grudge, by the burden of past memories, by traumas, by lack of trust, we will be able to bring ourselves back to the present moment, strengthen our mental determination, our resolve, our aditana. Yes, this is the way through. That's how we remove the arrow again and again and again because it'll keep coming. And we have to keep protecting ourselves until there is not a trace of that craving left. Then we are safe then we're spiritually totally safe. That's the kind of safety we all long for. So I hope this has been 
of help for the freeing of the heart, the brightening of the mind, for the, the following the path to its completion. And may all beings benefit from our work here this week. Thank you.